Dear God, we, with gratitude, confess with the choir that truth. David said, I can, I can fly, wing my way to the farthest corner of the universe, and you are there. I make my bed in hell, you are there. You are always there. And we are grateful. A few moments longer, we linger in worship. We need Holy Scripture now to engage our minds, address our hearts. Dear God, let it be your voice that speaks through this ancient document. Teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Isn't God an awesome creator? I mean. I'm going to show you a picture in a moment that was just released this Wednesday in the journal Nature, the prestigious scientific journal Nature. The world of astronomy is abuzz. Can you believe this? They are saying, thanks to the technology of the Hubble Space Telescope, astronomers have now identified what they are calling the oldest, that's how they're phrasing it, the oldest object in the universe ever to be imaged. They've located the farthest galaxy known to man. And they've given the galaxy a name. It is... UDFY 3813553539. How would you like to have that name when your mother calls you in for supper? <laughs> Do you know how far away that galaxy is? Hold on to your pew right now. That galaxy is 13 billion light years away. Do you know how far that is? We, we, we have no concept, but let, let me just run the numbers by you. You remember life tra- uh, light travels at... 186,272, isn't that right? Miles per second. So they're saying approximately 6 trillion miles a year. So to find out how many miles are 13 billion light years, you've got to put it on the screen for you. You've got to multiply 13 billion light years times 6 trillion miles per year. And here's the number that you get, 78 with 21 zeros after it. That's 78 sextillion miles. The farthest place now imaged in this universe. Not this university. In this universe. <laughs> it's, it's a long way across campus, but trust me, it's not that long. When it's winter, it feels like 78 sextillion miles, but... Isn't that amazing? Not exactly an afternoon stroll unless you are God and the universe is your backyard. So here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. When we talk about God being infinite, we are confessing that it is beyond our feeble, human, finite reasoning to understand the utter magnitude and glory of this one that we've come to worship today. I'm reading through the book of Romans right now. And this week I came to this line. I love it. I put it on the screen for you. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And I like the way the NIV renders this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths. And here's the NIV's little take on it. And His paths beyond tracing out. You, can't just, you just can't get down that path. It's so far. 78 with 21 zeros. What an awesome Creator we've come on His Sabbath. This is His day. And we've come together to worship Him. And of course, we're delighted for all of you who are joining us around the world right now. It is our privilege to host you 
in this Sabbath worship experience. This creator, by the way, who was the one who incarnated himself into the human stream of time. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 are absolutely clear. Christ himself spoke this universe into existence. Incarnated himself and then gets close to this, I don't want to say bumbling, but very humble fisherman. And begins working on that man's heart, that young man's heart. He says, hey, 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 come on, come on, come on, follow me, follow me. And the young man becomes a disciple. And Jesus says, come on, come on, come on. And the young man becomes an apostle. And the Holy Spirit says, come, come, boy, come. And he becomes a prophet. And through this prophet, Peter, this is going to blow you out of the water. I've been brooding over this passage all week. Just saw it for the first time this week. Through this prophet, Peter, God will make a prediction 2,000 years in advance and will describe the raging debate in thinking circles at the end of time regarding origins. It is a prediction, you watch, that you will agree has come true. Open your Bible with me, please, to that second letter of this humble fisherman, Peter. I tell you what, you may not have gone to university a day in your life. Peter hadn't. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you suddenly have a grasp of divine reality that cannot be taken from you. Don't you worry, some of you visiting in your, on this university campus, well, I never got to go to a university. You don't have to go to a university now. You stay close to the one who stood, stood beside Peter. You'll get it. Second Peter chapter 3. Page number. Grab the Pew Bible. Listen, if you didn't, uh, you didn't bring your Bible, please, you've got to follow this on the Pew Bible. The page is 818. Take your Pew Bible out. Same translation that I'll be preaching from today. The New King James Version. Second Peter chapter 3. We'll pick it up right there at the top of the chapter. Beloved friends, hey, you, you who are in the community of faith. He's talking to us. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds. I love that. That's what universities, Seventh-day Adventist Christian universities have been raised up to do, to stir up our pure minds so that you're never the same again when you leave. That's a good thing. That's where the phrase comes from, by the way. You've heard that phrase used right here. I'm writing this to you. In fact, I wrote both letters that I might stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now, notice how he wants to stir up our pure minds. Verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Here's how I'm going to stir up your pure minds. I'm going to take you to the ancient prophets. I want you to examine those prophets. I want you to brood over what those long ago writers wrote. I'm going to shake up your, your worldview. I'm going to change the paradigm. I want you to go back to those prophets. Stir up your pure minds. In fact, Peter's already talked about the prophets. We didn't know that because we jumped into the last chapter. But take a look at chapter 1 here. Peter's talking about these prophets in verse 19. Just turn a page back. And so Peter reminds us, Hey, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. The prophetic word as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation Final verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason this line is important to us right here, I want you to get this. We tend to think of prophets, their, their moral authority, 
for a community of faith, we tend, we tend to think of prophets as having an authority that extends into the future. All right, well, they're telling us what hasn't happened yet. We call that prophecy, writing history in advance. That's what we tend to think of. That's what prophets do. We forget that prophets not only look into the future, prophets have been given moral authority by God to look authoritatively into the past and tell us what the past was. That point is critical for our understanding of today's teaching. In fact, that point is so vital. I wish you'd grab your study guide out. Pull it out of your worship bulletin right now. Please, take your study guide out and let's write that point down before we forget it. Thank you, ushers. If you didn't get a study guide, hold your hand up. Okay, ushers, see your hands. Just keep your hands up all the way into the back balcony. Those of you who are, who are in overflow right now, we've got ushers in there. Let them know you don't have a study guide. I want to make sure everybody gets this teaching. This teaching is a fascinating teaching. Fascinating what you're about to encounter. This humble fisherman, anointed by God. And those of you who are watching, we're already... I've already mentioned we're delighted to have you. I want you to have, please, the same study guide. And so we're going to put it on the screen for you right now, our website. There it is. The website has gone up on your screen. You see it at the bottom of the, of the uh, screen, www.pmchurch.tv. I'm going to hold that screen up for you for a moment because you're watching this live. Wherever you are on earth, type in that website, pmchurch.tv. You will be taken immediately to uh, our television ministry, New Perceptions, you're looking for the series, The Gift. You see it there, The Gift. This is part five. By the way, you weren't here for the first four, and you're not going to be here for the last remainder, which begins next week. Don't you miss the, the Gift of Prophecy. That's the focus of this teaching series, The Gift of Prophecy. Next week, the third millennium. The Gift in the third millennium. Don't you miss next week. Be here for that. But all the podcasts, all the videocasts are there on that website, so you can get them. You're looking for today's teaching, A Tale of Two Titans. And it'll say study guide right beneath that title. Click on and you will have the identical study guide. It'll be on your screen. and You'll be able to fill the answers in as we go. Those of you watching, the answers are also at the bottom of the page. But don't cheat and look first. All right, let's fill in that first sentence. First sentence that we just noted. We don't want to forget this. Prophets were not only authoritative. Can we put it on the screen, please? There we go. Prophets were not only authoritative messengers from God about events yet future. Scribble that down. Not only authoritative about what's coming ahead, they were also authoritative messengers from God about events in the past. Now look, we'll come over here to the future. Of course, there were prophets like John the Revelator, Daniel, who spoke magnificently about what is to come. We know about those prophets. But let's not forget that there were also prophets looking this way. We're talking about Moses. We're talking about David, who spoke just as authoritatively. This is the key point. Just as authoritatively. And they looked back this way and said, let me tell you about reality back there. We will tell you about reality up there. But us in this group, we will tell you about reality back there. Both are under divine authority to speak to the community of faith. Okay, so let's go. Back to chapter 3. Verse 2, now Peter says, I want you to be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days. Hit the pause button right there. Scoffers will come in the last days. Please note, ladies and gentlemen, that whatever we're going to experience now, whatever Peter describes, it clearly is intended to be a prophecy about the last days. Peter now is not looking this way. Peter is looking this way. Something's going to happen in the last days. 
just before the second coming of Christ. You say, well, Dwight, I don't know if this is really the second coming of Christ. Oh, we do. Look at verse 10, same chapter. Chapter 3, just drop down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. That's all we need to read. We know when Peter talks about last days, he means the end of the world. He's talking about the return of Christ. So that is absolutely clear. Just before the second coming of Christ, Peter predicts what we are about to read will be taking place. Watch this. Fascinating. Pick it up in verse 3 again. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Verse 4, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Hit the pause button there again. And this is what struck me. This is what I... I have brooded over this week. Did you know? Did you know that these scoffers, that's what Peter's calling them, did you know that these scoffers are actually believers? They're believers. I used to think these are just rank atheists. Of course there'll be atheists at the end of time. These are believers. Let me give you three evidences. Jot it down. Three evidences why I believe it's clear that these are believers. Three evidences fill that in that the scoffers, Peter's word, are believers. Part of the community of faith. Watch this. Three evidences. Number one, they believe there is a coming. Isn't that something? Now put, uh, put verse 4 back on the screen for us, please. Notice the italicized words here. Second uh, uh, Peter 3, verse 4. They say, where is the promise of His coming? It's the language of the community of faith. They don't ask as an atheist might, hey, listen, there is no coming. Or what do you mean about this Jesus who you think is coming back? They speak the language of an insider. Where is the promise of His coming? They're not against the second coming of Christ. They simply no longer embrace the imminence of that return. That's nah, not going to happen. No, nah, come on. Where is this? Where is this? See? It's the imminence that they now reject. They're believers. The three evidences. Evidence number one, they believe that there is a coming. Evidence number two, jot it down, they believe there was a creation. That's what startled me. They actually believed there was a creation. Watch this. Put it back on the screen, please. And they're saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, catch this now, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They believe once upon a time there was a creation. Isn't that something? They're not rejecting divine creation. They believe that it is a creation unfolded through the philosophy of uniformitarianism, which we'll get to in just a moment. But they believe there's a creation way back there. And finally, number three, they believe there is a corpus or body of truth. Put that verse again on the screen. Hear these at the end of time, just before the return of Jesus, who will say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep. Isn't that amazing? The language these scoffers use here makes it clear they adhere to the corpus of truth regarding death, that it's asleep. They believe that it is asleep. Their language reflects the language of the community of faith that Peter himself belongs to. So they believe there is a coming. They believe there was a creation. They they believe there is a corpus of truth. So what's the problem, Dwight? I mean, okay. Ah, Peter's point is that they are attempting to blend 
two radically opposing world views into one. Say, hey, time out, time out. What are you talking about, this worldview thing? Well, it's a technical word we use. Let me put it on the screen for you. You can fill it in in your study guide. Here's the definition of a worldview. Definition. The authoritative paradigm. What's a paradigm? It's a pair of glasses. It's how you interpret life in the world. The authoritative paradigm, that's what a worldview is, by which you interpret life and the world. All right? Those are two key words. It's not about uh, how you interpret just any little old thing. No, this is, these are grand cosmic issues. Life and the world. The pair of glasses you use to interpret the world. So, look, I have a pair of glasses. We'll pretend these are my, these are my worldview. So with my worldview in my mind and in my heart, I look, with the, I look up at the galaxies and I make a conclusion about those galaxies because of my worldview. I look at an, an amoeba and I make a conclusion about that tiny little speck of life. I consider the meaning of life, but the glasses help me to understand. The meaning of death, the glasses help me to understand. It's a worldview. That's what the glasses are. And by the way, make sure you understand this. There are only two worldviews. Not three, not four, only two. So the only way you can put both worldviews together is to put two pairs of glasses on at the same time. It's a little ludicrous because they cancel each other out. But that's Peter's point. He's warning us. Sit up and take note. In the last days, there'll be two worldviews. You say, oh, Dwight, I don't, I don't see these two worldviews here. Oh, let me show you the worldviews. Jot it down, please. Worldview. In fact, before, we, before you jot it down, let me just read it again. Verse 3. And then we'll jot it down. Verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep... All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Worldview number one. What is that worldview called? Very plainly today, it's called naturalism. Right in the word naturalism. All things continue as they were from the beginning. Nature is just doing her own thing. Naturalism. That's what naturalism means. Peter's very clear about it. Once upon a time, there was an Englishman named Charles Darwin. He was bobbing out on the high seas in a ship named the HMS Beagle. And while he was, Darwin was reading the books of a lawyer-turned-geologist named Charles Lyell who advocated that the earth had been shaped by slow, gradual forces working over a vast time scale. It's called uniformitarianism. Lyell popularized that worldview. And as he read, while his boat steamed toward the Galapagos Islands, Darwin embraced Lyell's theory and would eventually apply it to biology as well. Only it's, it's called gradualism. Slow biological evolution over long ages of time. The website Apologetics Press describes the teaching this way. Taking his cue from uniformitarianism, Darwin concluded that species not only had unlimited capacity for change, but that this change occurred uniformly through time. He used the Latin phrase, natura non facit saltum, or nature never makes leaps. Isn't that amazing? 1,800 years before Charles Darwin, a humble fisherman, inspired by the omnipotent third person of the Godhead, described a titan worldview that would grip the human race at the end of time. 
Peter described it this way, all things continue as they were from the beginning. That's what Peter predicted. That's what Charles Darwin believed. Gradualism, uniformitarianism, naturalism, the philosophy that life gradually evolved on this planet without the aid of the divine nature. Just, she just did it. Give her enough time, she can do it. Peter predicted that worldview before the return of Jesus. All right, that's worldview number one, because it comes first in Peter. We'll call the next one worldview number two. Jot it down, would you please? First, we'll read uh, verse three again, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Verse four, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse five. Now, here we go. For this, they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Verse six, by which the word, the world that then existed, perished, being flooded with water. Now, that's another worldview. Jot it down. Will you? We'll call if the first one is naturalism. Let's call this second one supernaturalism. And that's what philosophers call it. Supernaturalism. What's that? But what did Peter just write? By the word of God, the heavens and the earth were of old. Supernaturalism. doesn't take rocket science to figure that out, does it? The, the uh, Latin word super means above and beyond. This worldview says there is someone super to creation. Someone above creation. Someone beyond creation. A divine being who by His command, fiat, the Latin word, let, let it be done, by His fiat command, brought the entire universe into existence. Wow. Galaxy UDFY 3835539B created. I hope you came up with a better name than that. <laughs> Sparrowhawk, daffodil, humpback whale, neurons, neutrons, be created. And it was so. Why wouldn't you love to have that power? I'd love to walk into the kitchen in the morning and say, breakfast, be created. <laughs> Boy, this time of year, I'd like to walk into the backyard and say, leaves, be raked. <laughs> Where'd they go? Ladies and gentlemen, remember, Peter is admonishing us a moment ago to take very seriously the authoritative word of the ancient prophets. He does that for a reason. And in fact, right here, he will, he will defer to two prophets for establishing this other, this higher, this divine worldview. The first prophet he defers to is the prophet Moses. Now remember, we already established the truth. Prophets are not only authoritative about what is yet to happen, prophets are also authoritative about what has already happened. Moses does that. So I'm reading my new Andrew study Bible. I'm reading the notes, the scholarly notes for Genesis 1. And I was reminded there. Did you, did you know that the phrase, Amar Elohim, God said. Do you know how many times that phrase appears in the creation account in Genesis 1? Jot it down, will you please? Nine times the phrase, God said. Write those words in. Nine times in that six-day creation account, because that's all that's in the first chapter. Nine times. God said appears in the Genesis 1 creation account. What's the point, Dwight? Here's the point. The authoritative Word of God through the prophet Moses clearly rejects any notion 
that eons past, God triggered the evolution of life and then stood back and had nature take its course. All right, so I'll get a little bit of a protoplasm here. Good, now go. I'll drop in on you every few eons and I'll check to see how things are going. No hint of it. No God saying, oh, no, no, I'll step in and have these little leaps. I'll make a miracle, miraculous leap here and I'll make a miraculous leap here. I need you to get all the way, evolution, till I get the human race. Not a hint of it. Nine times, intentionally, the writer, and let us not think that Moses had somehow a weaker IQ than our own. I have a feeling he towers today because he's alive today. I have a feeling he towers in his IQ even when he was here. He says, no, 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 no. You're not reading what I wrote. I said, God said. You didn't just start a little protoplasm and then every life follows from it. No. Every form of life God created. He spoke that one, that one, white corpuscle, firefly. God spoke. Wow. Peter's deferring to ancient prophets before him. You know what? You and I are the only creation personally handcrafted by our loving Creator. We're the exception. You may not like the way you look. God thinks you're beautiful. That's the worldview too. You're beautiful to the Creator. He dreamed of the day you would be born out of the birth canal of your mother. Join the human race. He's had a dream for you from the beginning. Don't you ever forget it. No matter how raw life turns, He has a dream for you. You're here by divine appointment. That's worldview too. By the way, not just the prophet Moses, the prophet David. Take a look at this. Jot this down in your study guide. Psalm 33, verse 6 and verse 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Divine fiat, let it be done, creation. I'm calling this creation into existence, and it exists. You say, oh, Dwight, that's just kind of an Old Testament... uh, Kind of a vestige of the ancients' uninformed way of thinking. Oh, really? Take a look at the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed. The worlds were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are seen are not made of things which are visible. I do it without any any dependency on pre-existing matter. You exist. Creation. Divine fiat. There it is. 2,000 years ago, Peter predicted two clashing titan worldviews at the end of time. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? His prediction has come true today. Inside and outside the community of faith. Furthermore, You know what Peter, his prediction indicates? It indicates that some would attempt, at the end of time, some would attempt to amalgamate the two worldviews. How they pull that off? Peter's very clear. What is that verse? Verse 5. They willfully forget. Or as the New Revised Standard Version uh, translates it, they deliberately ignore. Peter writes that the only way such an amalgamation known today is theistic evolution. 
Peter says the only way you can get theistic evolution today is if you forget three realities in God's worldview. By the way, I left this out a moment ago, and I'm seeing it in my notes. When God created the world in the beginning, jot this down, will you? In the beginning, there was only one worldview. There was no second worldview. There was nothing. The serpent hadn't begun to hiss and formulate with all the chutzpah of his fallen heart and mind. He hadn't begun yet to formulate a worldview, a messy worldview that will successfully blank the Creator out of existence. Gone. Voila. No Creator now. Aren't I clever? Isn't that amazing? There was only one worldview in the beginning. All right, where were we? All right, so here's Peter's point. The only way you can amalgamate these two titans, pull them together some kind of hybrid amalgamation, the only way you can do it is to forget the three realities of the first worldview, really the one that's always existed, that's true. What are the three you have to forget? Jot these down real quick. What are the three you have to forget? You have to forget that by word, God created all life forms into existence. If you say, no, he didn't do that, you're just pushing Jesus right out of the... Good, good, goodbye, Jesus. I know John 1 says you are the Word and you came from God and you are God. We don't need you because we don't believe you did it by Word. Goodbye, Jesus. You have to get rid of Jesus out of the creation account. The Word. Get out. Get Him out. In order to amalgamate the two. What do you have to forget? Number one, you have to forget that by Word God created all life forms into existence. You have to forget that by water... God cleansed a morally corrupted world through a global flood. Nah, I don't need that. No, no, no. I don't like the picture of God that that reflects anyway. Who needs a flood? You have to forget, deliberately ignore the authoritative prophetic word, there was a flood. You say, ah, it's not important for me. Goodbye, Jesus. I know what you were doing there anyway. Three things you have to forget, that by word God created all life, that by water He cleansed a corrupted world. And finally, you have to... Forget that by warning, God is appealing to His earth children to come to Him before the world will be cleansed one more time, destroyed and recreated into its pristine, primordial glory. I'll have to destroy this whole earth and start over, guys. The rebellion is that deep. It has destroyed my creation. I'll give you a new heavens. I'll give you a new earth. Don't get excited. I will give you a brand new garden one day. You have to forget that. Read it again, verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same divine word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly. You have to forget all of that. Now listen, before I share a story and sit down. Why is this amalgamation that has now become reality? Ask any scientist. She'll tell you. No, it's a reality. Why is this amalgamation of the two worldviews biblically illogical? May I show you? Because if there were no divine fiat creation and there were no global flood, 
then there simply is no case and certainly no evidence for the soon coming of Christ. I mean, think, think about it. Come on, think. If God used long ages to get us here, then He certainly could use long ages to get us to wherever I guess He's supposed to take us. Why do you suddenly have to have God intervening now? You haven't had Him intervene all the way back. It's illogical. But that's what happens when you put two pairs of glasses on. They cancel each other out. And by the way, if there really were no global flood long ago, then why believe there will be a global judgment someday? Which means the apocalyptic appeal that our president referred to in, in the interview a moment ago. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. That is absolutely meaningless. It's over. Finish. Throw it out. We don't need it. It took long ages to get here. It's going to take Him long ages to get wherever He goes, because if His, if his modus operandi is long ages, why would He suddenly stop doing long ages? It makes no sense logically at all. It is divinely impossible humanly impossible to wed the two titan worldviews in order to make peace with both, both sides. Which is why the two worldviews cannot be allowed to remain amalgamated. It just can't be. Sorry. It doesn't work. So what should we do, Peter? I mean, come on. Thanks a lot for telling us all this. But what are we supposed to do now? Ah, look at this, verse 8. But beloved, my friends, he says, Yo, you who are in the community of faith, beloved, do not forget this. Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I know it's... Peter says, hey guys, I know, I know it feels like we've been at this thing forever. Don't quit. Hang on to Him. Time to Him is different. He's going to do it Right? When he rewrites the story, he will never have to put a P.S. It will always be the new story forever and ever. Amen. That's why time for him. We have to trust him. Truth. Hey, listen. God's truth. Here's Peter's point. God's truth will out itself. You're not going to be simply walking in dark faith forever. There will come a day when in resplendent glory we will see. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. We have believed the truth. Peter says, hey, guys, hang on. Don't quit now. I know it feels like you've been at this forever. I haven't forgotten, God says. In fact, I love this picture of God. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. The NIV says the Lord is not slow concerning His promise, as some count slowness. But He is patient. I love that. He is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that beautiful? Listen, here's the point. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the point. In the end, only one worldview counts. And it is the Creator's view of the world. That's the point. It's interesting, there's a little word embedded in, in verse 9 that Peter just writes to us. His fishing buddy, John Boy, you know the young John Boy? They fished together for years. His fishing buddy, John Boy, will come along, take the same word, because he writes his gospel much later than Peter. 
And he will insert that word into his beloved John 3.16. The word is perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Because you see, that's the truth. What counts, the worldview, the only worldview that counts is the Creator's view of the world. And how did He view the world? He loved the world. He loved you and me so much that the, the infinite Creator came down and tabernacled in flesh and blood so that He might die for the human race, for sinners like you and me. Calvary, the next time you're looking at Calvary, embedded right here on this platform, the next time you're looking at Calvary, that's the Creator, your Creator, who's going to death for you and me. Unbelievable that He would give His life so that we might be rescued and saved from the evil one whose worldview is to pull us into His snare and take us down with Him. I want to end with a story. It's in my little book, Creation and Evolution. I actually got it from my friend Jim Tucker who used to be on our campus here. And so I want to read you Jim's story. It's from his delightful book, wonderful book on nature called Windows on God's World. So let me read the story to you, all right, in closing. Eugene Marias, South African journal, a naturalist, rather. Some of you are from South Africa. Eugene Marias observed, so one day he's out on a trip, he observed that a troop of baboons always slept in a cave situated at the end of a ledge high on the sheer face of a cliff. To get to the cave, the animals had to make their way along a narrow ledge that was only six inches wide in some places. Because it was so difficult to reach, though, the cave was an extremely safe spot to spend the night and only one or two sentinels were needed to guard the sleeping troop. You got the picture? The baboons are sleeping, but they have two sentinels. All right, one evening now, Marias noticed a leopard below the ledge as the baboons were approaching the cave entrance. The leopard was quite capable of making his way along the ledge if he chose to do so, and with a few quick swipes of a powerful paw, could have picked, had his pick of the sleeping baboons. The leopard spotted the troop and began to stalk them, staying just below the baboons as they wound their way up the cliff. However, the baboons also spotted the leopard. And Marias watched as two of them very stealthily made their way back along the ledge until they were directly over the big cat. Concentrating on the moving troop, the leopard was unmindful of the two individuals stationed above him. Suddenly, the two baboons dropped in the air onto the leopard, one biting the cat's spine, the other lunging for his throat. In two swift movements, the leopard grasped the baboon on his back and his jaws ripped the other one open with his claws. Both baboons were killed instantly. But their actions saved the rest of the troop, for the leopard was soon dead as well. For the baboon that had attacked his throat had punctured his jugular vein. Ladies and gentlemen, I understand how Darwinian scientists attempt to ex- explain away such obvious altruism. They say, well, you know what that is. That's a manifestation of group selection where one animal, animal sacrifices itself for the sake of the nation of animals. Or they call it, this is kinship selection where the animal sacrifices itself to preserve the survival of its genes in its offspring. 
But may I suggest another explanation? Could it be that the heart of a loving Creator has been implanted in the heart and soul of His creation? Could it be this Creator who gave His own life in order to save His own earth children has planted Himself in all of us? I don't know about you, but I've got to admit, I find this worldview the most convincing and the most appealing.